Hi, I'm Luisa Portugal. And I'm Ria Almeida. And this is our show where we talk about coronavirus-related policy issues as we try to navigate this crazy pandemic with you. This is episode six, and our guests are going to talk about how institutional systems reacted to the pandemic. Jasmine Jeffers is talking about schools, and Brian Farkas will reflect on courtrooms and the legal system. Welcome to CoronaCast, a Wagner Review podcast series. Real quick, everyone, this new segment is going to be a little different. Ria and I just <laughs> learned about this new policy and we are really rattled. There has been a very, very scary immigration policy that has scared a lot of international students. Uh, it is related to the coronavirus, so I think we should talk about it. ICE has announced that all F1 visa students have to leave the US if classes are going fully online next semester. And there are changes based on whether a school is going to return in person for classes, return online for classes, or return in a hybrid model. These are the three options that universities are considering. And depending on which state they are in, responses have been very different. There are so many different points that we can analyze this policy from. One that we can't help but ask ourselves is why, right? Yeah. How international students come into play with all the horrendous um, criminal immigration policies that Trump has done so far? I think, I mean, there was a certain security that I guess we felt going to big schools like NYU. We have protection in F1 visas. As visas, they aren't as risky as some H1B policies can be. I just signed a new lease in New York City in the middle of the pandemic because I felt that much security in my visa. There's a lot to be said about the timing of it. There's a lot to be said about what Trump stands for in terms of immigration policy to his voters. There is a lot to be said by the fact that at the same time, Trump tweeted in all <laughs> caps, his schools must have in-person classes for the fall. You have to wonder how much of this is a political strategy. According to the U.S. Department of Commerce, in 2018, international students contributed $45 billion to the U.S. economy. I guess he is forcing the hand of universities to reopen quickly. This is going to force them to try to do as much in person as they can. And that is going to get students to stay here, students to have to go to classes and stir some sort of economy. I guess that's the political move. You'll know that Dr. Farchi went to Congress recently to say that the pandemic's not under control and that the darkest days are still ahead of us, that he sees scenarios where we can have 100,000 infected by the day. We know that Harvard just reiterated that they will have all their classes online this fall and Princeton said that they will have majority of their classes online this fall. Mm-hmm. And now we have a president that's <laughs> forcing schools to move in person. This is when 11 million cases are being recorded globally. So if students do have to leave, you and I are examples of students who will have to go back to very, very risky countries. Brazil and India being second and third on the list of highest cases. I think the uncertainty of what we're feeling right now has just been the same uncertainty we have felt since March. 
239 medical experts from 32 countries wrote an open letter to the WHO. And they shared piles of evidence that the virus is actually airborne in small particles and not just through large droplets like we usually thought. Of course, the WHO is not convinced and has not revised any protocol. There is so much we don't know about the coronavirus. And now there is so much we don't know about our immigration and legal status. And I mean, we are complaining about going back to our countries. But China and Mongolia are dealing with the bubonic plague right now. What even is 2020? <laughs> I mean, bubonic plague? Are you serious? <laughs> and on that note, let's head to our interview segment. Our first guest today is Jasmine Jeffers. She has almost a decade of experience raising money and engaging alumni in the youth development, higher education and education reform sectors. She is currently working as the Associate Director of Development at Achievement First, a college preparatory charter school network in New York City. She is also an MBA student at Wagner with us and a staff writer for the Wagner Review. So welcome, Jasmine. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Thanks for having me. So let's start from the basics. If we're talking about education, COVID-19 hit us in March. Could you tell us about how schools responded and the measures they took to continue education at that time? Sure. Um, by mid-March, I would say pretty universally across this country, the prevailing attitude in the educational sector was just blind panic. We received relatively limited guidance about the spread of the coronavirus, which was followed in many places by very abrupt orders to shut down. Um, here in New York City, we got about 24 hours notice before public schools were closed, and of course, they have been closed since then. The limited notice given to educational institutions made it really hard for us to pivot in anything other than a very reactive manner. Uh, we were also provided with very limited information regarding the length of closures, which made it really hard to undergo long-term planning. Uh, at this point, um, it's pretty universal that uh, students across the United States, from kindergarten all the way up through graduate school, are learning remotely and will be learning remotely for the foreseeable future. The form that remote learning takes varies very widely depending on the educational institution and the student. But in general, it bears only a very vague resemblance to the kind of learning that kids were doing in class. Uh, synchronous whole classroom instruction um, using teleconferencing platforms like Zoom is still being widely used for elementary school students. But by the time we get to high school, remote instruction tends to look more like the kind of learning we see happening in college. There's pretty limited time spent in large group instruction. There's a lot more self-directed study and independent assignments. Districts that had the resources to provide centralized curricular resources and professional development have been much more successful in ensuring that students don't fall behind and teachers aren't overwhelmed. But in places where there isn't that scaffolding, the quality of education is much more variable. You mentioned bad communication from the government, and this is kind of a recurring topic in our podcast. So how do you think that governments could have communicated better with the schools to help this transition to a virtual setting? I am not sure that with the educational system in the state that it is currently in, that things could have been done any better. Um, and I think that really speaks to the heart of this crisis. The coronavirus is novel, um, the disparities existing in our educational system are not. And the reason why communication, I think, was so fragmented and so last minute is because we rely upon schools to do a lot of things that are not at their core, the job of schools, um, like 
feeding students who are food insecure. And it is all of those um, sort of intersecting and external factors that made the mayor and the governor in the state very reluctant to close schools and have led to just ongoing hardship um, for students who are out of schools and their families. Could you talk about private versus public schools? Is there a gap between how they managed to respond to this crisis? I think there are differences in the kinds of resources um, that the government has provided to private versus public schools. But the response to this crisis has less to do with private versus public and more to do with other factors like the size of the district and the depths of their pockets and the needs of their students. So the New York City Department of Education is the largest district in the country. It serves over 1.1 million students. So they have the advantage of economies of scale. They can do things like get competitive pricing and large orders of laptops and provide professional development to all of their teachers. They also find it very hard to be nimble because they're huge and their student body is very diverse and they have to create consistent policies for students who are suffering through this pandemic in very different ways. I think we have the impression that private schools predominantly serve wealthier students. When we think of private schools in this country, you think of elite institutions like Andover or Harvard-Westlake. But there are also lots of parochial schools in this nation's big cities that do not have the same ability to weather this crisis financially. Um, I think the biggest variance in both the response to this pandemic and the efficacy of that response, however, lies not in the schools, but in the differing needs of those school students. Um, here in New York City, most students are Black or Hispanic, over 70% are low income, and they're suffering from all kinds of intersecting traumas, financial instability, losing loved ones to this virus, living in communities that are really over-policed, that impacts their ability to show up in class. And the way that education funding works right now, we have a really limited ability to provide resources in response to these crises. New York City's educational budget has been cut for 2020-21. We stand to face further cuts and the federal government has largely failed to step in with support. What do you think are the main difficulties that students are facing now in the transition to a virtual school system? So in New York City and in big urban districts, the problem is access. Um, and that was relatively fixable. Um, school districts across the country in the wake of this crisis stepped up to provide students with free laptops or tablets and internet access, um, whether that be via data or wireless hotspots or through subsidized internet access from existing internet service providers. That process was um, quicker than it has been from, uh, for other districts, but it was an immense logistical challenge. Here in New York, about one in three students lack internet access in their homes. Um, that percentage is much higher for students who are housing insecure or homeless. Um, to paraphrase the sociologist Matthew Desmond, when you do not have stable housing, everything else falls apart. So a lot of the problems that we are trying to solve through the school system are actually problems of housing. If you have no safe or stable place at home or no home at all in which to study or do one's homework, then it doesn't really matter if you have internet access or not. Um, and that is a problem I think that the city has been struggling with for generations. And our current response is wholly inadequate to deal with the problem. I think this is a, a difficult dynamic that is outside the scope of the public school system and providing students with internet access and laptops is a very incomplete way of dealing with that much larger problem. What are some long-term education reform policies we can look at to close the gap for low-income students, especially students of color? 
I think what educational professionals have to keep in mind is that what happens outside of the classroom impacts students' abilities to show up in class. Um, I think education reform has so far focused largely in academic proficiency. In the future, even after this crisis is over, we must focus on the social services that are needed to teach students with a trauma-informed mindset, whether that be restorative justice, social services, or links to other supports um, like food stamps or immigration help. There have been a lot of calls right now within the movement in New York to defund the NYPD and reallocate some of those budgetary funds towards education. So is mm -hmm. that something that you think is a viable ask? Is it a refunding of education in that way? Do you think that that could actually be something that happens? I do think it could be something that happens and I think it is actually vital. Um, just like the DOE, the NYPD are often called to do things that are outside of their mandate. And when you have a hammer or a gun in this instance, everything looks like a nail. Um, there are a variety of intersecting social problems that we've already talked about existing within the city's public schools. I do not think policing is the most efficient or effective way of solving those problems. And it is my hope that as we think about um, what we will choose to spend money on in the midst of this economic crisis, that we choose to redirect some of that money um, towards the social services that I talked about earlier in this interview. Thank you, Jasmine. This has been a great interview. Thank you. Our next guest on this episode is Brian Farkers, a litigator at Arendt Fox LLP and an adjunct professor of law at Cardozo School of Law in New York. He is a graduate of NYU Wagner and his interests lie in public policy, court systems and legal institutions. He is also a contributing editor for the Wagner Review. So thank you for coming here, Brian. To start us off, can you walk us through what a courtroom used to look like before the pandemic? Um, so court generally is a really busy place. And when we talk about court, we're talking about both state courts and federal courts. Um, there are a lot of people in courts. You have judges, you have um, prosecutors, defense attorneys, lawyers, um, you have court staff, including bailiffs and marshals. Um, and then of course you have uh, juries and juries are literally randomly sampled people from around the relevant um, community around the jurisdiction. So if you think about, it's almost like a nightmare scenario if you're thinking about an infectious disease like um, the coronavirus. And so it obviously did not take long for policymakers in, in March and April around the country to realize hey, wait a second, we, we can't operate our courts in the way that we traditionally have operated them. So now a lot of courts are functioning virtually. Do you think that this is an effective solution for the court system during the pandemic? Electronic virtual appearances have many um, benefits in the sense that they can, can prevent the spread of the virus, certainly, but they also have potential drawbacks and different judges feel differently about those drawbacks. So there's sort of a belief in our American judicial system that when you have someone physically in front of you, you can assess whether they're credible, honest, believable, whether they're hiding something, whether they're not. Uh, and that's a big part of our, um, our justice system, at least 
at least for trials and for hearings. And so one of the reasons that some courts are a bit hesitant to move to certainly telephonic, but also video appearances, is you can't really assess credibility quite as easily when you can't see what someone's doing with their hands, when you can't see what facial expression they're making, when you can't see if they're texting someone to, to um, fill in their answer, for example. And I think that that is something that really concerns at least some judges. And one of the things to realize about courts in the United States is that they're, they're very decentralized. At the federal level, each federal trial level court, which we call district courts, has its own chief judge. And then each of the appellate courts also has its own chief judge and its own sort of administrative bureaucratic structure. And then on the state side, of course, we have um, 50 different states plus the District of Columbia with all different um, administrative system. So every single court system in the United States um, is handling these, these um, decisions in somewhat different ways. So do you think that virtual court appearances can unintentionally accentuate inequalities, taking into consideration factors like access to technology and digital literacy? That's a really good question and a really good point. And I think that it actually cuts both ways because on the one hand, well, is it possible that some people could have just technology that makes them look physically better um, and makes it more accessible for them to appear um, to be good and to be, um, to be right and to be clear? Is that, um, is that a concern? And I think that that is a concern. But on the other hand, if you think about what the old system was, the, the pre-March 2020 system, there were also a lot of inequalities baked into that system. For example, if you wanted to be a witness, if you were a witness in a um, court appearance or if you're a litigant, you actually probably had to take several hours or maybe even a whole day off of work to physically go to court. You'd have to think about maybe childcare, you'd have to think about um, how you're gonna get that time off of your job. And that costs money. And so I think that, that the advantage of um, virtual court appearances, in some ways it also makes it more democratic. Another very interesting legal discussion happening right now, which is actually very relevant to all of us, uh, is around college tuitions and students asking for either refunds or some sort of reduction. What can you tell us about this? So there have actually been a number of lawsuits that have been filed against various colleges and universities around the country. And their primary argument is essentially that the colleges breached their contract. So the, the students are, and families have argued, well, wait a second, you might be providing us with a sort of light version of the education through Zoom or, or whatever platform. But what about all that stuff that was in the college brochure that you sent to me when I was in high school that, that convinced me to actually enroll in your university? And so that's, that's been um, the primary argument for parents and families is essentially that, that colleges and universities aren't actually fulfilling their, their contract. And schools are in a tough position because colleges and universities have largely fixed costs. They are not able to simply um, terminate the majority of their employees because in colleges and universities, at least most colleges and universities, the most, um, the most expensive employees are tenured or tenure track. So courts will hear these cases in the 
um, in the months ahead. There haven't been decisions on them at this juncture, at least final decisions on these types of lawsuits. But colleges will likely argue that they performed their end of the contract by delivering academic credit in the best way that they could through a virtual medium. In fact, that, that's a pretty good argument in the sense that the, the primary thing that a student is getting, the primary benefit that a student is getting if they're a student at Vassar or Yale or NYU or Harvard is, is they're getting access to the very best faculty in the world and they're getting access to um, an elite credential that will help them on the job market. Another argument that colleges and universities will likely make is that they will rely on a contractual doctrine known as impossibility of performance. And impossibility of performance is basically a concept that to the extent that these schools had a contractual obligation to provide in-person campus experiences, they were actually unable to perform that obligation because of the pandemic. In the long term, how do you think that the coronavirus crisis will affect the court systems and the legal system in general? Overall, the pandemic has made the judicial system much more comfortable with technology. And that includes judges, it includes prosecutors, it includes defense attorneys, it includes really all attorneys and also the staff working inside of courthouses. Um, courts tend to be somewhat resistant to making dramatic changes very quickly, but now many court systems have been forced to experiment with digital court appearances for various legal matters over the last few months. And as I said, different state and federal courts have experimented with, with different versions of that. So ultimately, this could make certain parts of the legal system much more efficient by allowing lawyers and witnesses to appear remotely. And that will save time potentially on travel costs and legal fees and ultimately access to justice. Thank you, Brian. That was a very interesting interview. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on Corona Cast, a Wagner Review podcast series.